back in uh, 2014, there was a group of artists and musicians over in England, and they, um, they polled thousands of people, and they wanted to ask them one question. And then based on that question, they were going to create a TV series around that one question. And here's what that one question was. What are your happiest moments? One question. What are your happiest moments? Now, I want to give you the gift of reflection for a minute, and I want you to start thinking about what are some of your happiest memories? What are some of your happiest memories? And as you think about that, let me tell you what the answers that came in. As the answers came flooding in, there were lots of responses about first dates and first loves, first dances, memories of weddings and births, memories of holidays, conversations with, uh, with, with loved ones that seemed to never end, experiences where people had connected beyond the superficial, gone deep, a flood of different faces of the people that you love and cherish. And as they collected and aggregated all of these memories of happiness, three things stood out to them. First, less than 1% of all the memories that came in had to do with material things. When people had to really think about their happiest moments, material things weren't on the list. They simply didn't make the cut. The second thing that they noticed was that their memories were almost always about relationships of one kind or another. Families and friends, neighbors and coworkers, the people that you've gone deep with in life. And third, they took all of the data, all of the, the, the typed in responses, and they put it into a computer to analyze the data. And the word that came up most often was the word home. The word home. Now I'm guessing as you thought about some of your happiest memories, they fall in line with those observations as well. No one was, was thinking and th saying the happiest times of my life was when I, when I got those, th that new iPod when it first came out or, or when I got the latest iPhone or when I finally was able to buy a house. Those weren't the happiest memories of your life. Floods of faces uh, uh, went across your memory. People, relationships. And why is that? Because we know from our experience and our, and our intuition deep down in our souls that meaningful relationships make life worth living. I've never sat across the table with somebody as they poured out their heart for their vision of dreams of their life. No one said, man, I just long for superficiality. That's really what I'm going for. I just want to skim the surface of life. No one longs to be in these uh, distracted interactions. No one longs to be ignored or to feel small. No one longs to give of themselves, to, to be vulnerable, only to notice that the other person isn't paying any attention at all and they're flipping through some feed on their phone to have that feeling that they really don't matter. See, at the end of the day, what makes life meaningful is not how high you've climbed on the social ladder, the zeros in your bank account, how many followers you have on social media, how many little likes you get from the posts that you post. Not even really the quantity of relationships. What really matters most is the quality of our relationships. And what connects us to people and what makes relationships meaningful is presence. If you could just sum it up in one word, it would be this word presence. See, when we want to communicate to somebody our most sincere love, our, mo our deepest respect for somebody, we give them the gift of our presence that undivided attention, 
That, that feeling that you know they are dialed in, there's nowhere else they'd rather be, and they care about each and every word that is coming out of your mouth. See, your presence cannot be replicated. It can't be digitized. When I travel and I'm home away, it, it's great to have FaceTime to see the kids and they can see me, but, but they would choose me over FaceTime any day of the week. Your presence can't be faked either. Trust me, I have tried it. I have a very sharp, spongy memory. I can regurgitate everything you've said to me, but my wife knows when I'm really listening, when I'm really dialed in. And in those moments, you have a decision to make. You can engage and enter in, or you can be distracted. Sending a card is great, but it doesn't replace showing up. Sending thoughts and prayers doesn't replace sitting with someone when they've gone through the wake of tragedy. Sending a gift to mark a milestone moment doesn't replace that personal hug and hearing, I'm proud of you. Today in John 1, verses 14 through 18, we see that the eternal word, who is himself God, gives us nothing less than his presence through the incarnation. When the word, the son of God, came to earth, he came personally, bodily, in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And our text this morning, as we walk through, we're going to learn three things about this word who became flesh. First, we're going to look at the nature of the word. We're going to see that this word has two distinct natures, divinity and humanity, that the word of God is both fully God and fully man. The second thing we're going to learn is about the nearness of this word. We're going to see that the word did not stay distant, but he drew near. He came to earth to give us the greatest gift he could ever give, which is himself. And finally, we're going to learn about the name of this word. The eternal word is not impersonal, but personal, and he has a name that is above every name. So we're going to see the nature of the word, the nearness of the word, and the name of the word. So let's begin in uh, uh, John 1, verse 1, with the nature of the word. Now, as we look through the nature of the word, we're going to see two things, that the word has two natures. So if you're taking notes, the first one is he has a divine nature. And then secondly, we're going to see that he has a human nature. So John 1.1. We looked at this last week, but it's important to look at it once again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, in these first 13 verses that Pastor Kevin walked through last week, John is intentionally vague about who exactly the word is. You'll notice he hasn't made his big reveal yet. But he does tell us some significant facts about the word, particularly about his divine nature. John starts with these words, in the beginning. Now, if, you've been, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, that should immediately make you think of what? Genesis 1.1, the exact same words are there, in the beginning. The first words of the Bible, John uses those to, to make a correlation. See, before there was time, before there was creation, before there was anything but God, John tells us the word was there. He is eternal, and he was with God, the Father, from the beginning. Now, this word has eternally existed before there was time and there was any semblance of creation. The word is not a created thing. It's not a subsequent thing. He has eternally existed for all time, before there was time. Our human language just fails to give us the adequate words to describe something other than before time. 
Now, what's my point? For the word to be divine, the word must share in all of the divine attributes. That's what it means to have a divine nature. You have to have and share in all of the divine attributes. If you're lacking one of them, you fail to be divine, right? If he doesn't have all of the same attributes, he's not divine. Here we see that the word was, uh, uh, has the divine attribute of eternality, Just like God has the divine attribute of eternality, so does the word. But not only does the word share in all of the divine attributes, we also see that the word shares in the divine activity. Now, going back to those divine attributes, here we we see that that, that eternality. As we go through the Gospel of John, we're going to see all these other um, areas of of divine attributes that the word has as well. But But for right now, we see that he shares in that eternality. But second, we also see that he shares in divine activity. When you go through the first 13 verses of John 1, you see that the word was involved in the work of creation. It's a big project, right? Creating something out of nothing. The only one who's able to do that would be God himself. We tell, uh, John tells us that the word, uh, his activity in creation was so pivotal and so integral that John says without him, without the word, nothing could have been made that was made. Simply put, without the word, creation itself would not have been possible. It wouldn't have been possible. So it's not just uh, God the Father on his own. There's this other person, this this word, who's actively involved in the work of creation. And John tells us he was so integral to the work of creation, to seeing everything that you see, that without him, nothing could have been made. That was made. But not only does he have the divine attributes and divine activity, we also see that the word has a divine personality. When you read through John chapter 1, one thing that will start to, uh, if, especially if you're a grammar nerd, that will begin to, to, to clue into you is you'll see all throughout this prologue, he refers to the word with personal pronouns, he and him. Now think about that for a minute. Grammatically speaking, okay, go back to grammar school. What should the pronoun be to refer to the word? What's the right proper grammatical pronoun? It. Excellent. You guys get 100. It's it, Right? The word is an it. John is using horrible grammar, but incredible theology. The word is not an abstract principle. John is telling us that the eternal logos, the word of God, is not an abstract principle, but a person. He's telling us through these personal pronouns, he and him. It's not an an abstract, non-living principle. God is a divine person, and here we see that the word is a divine person as well. So if you take that together, right, all the biblical data that I've quickly kind of rattled off in verses 1 through 13, we can say the word has a divine personality, a divine, a divine activity, and divine attributes. And if you add all that together, here's the conclusion. The word has a divine nature. What I just showed you right there is what systematic theology is. It's taking biblical data, understanding what's being taught there, and synthesizing it into a a principle that you can kind of understand what's going on there. And if that weren't enough, and it is, but if that weren't enough, John flat out says, by the way, the word was God. So if you didn't put all those pieces together, John says, I'll do the the math for you. The word was God. John 1.1, and the word was God. Now, at this point in the chapter, we still don't know who this word is. We don't know his identity yet. But what we do know is whoever this word is, 
He is God. He has a divine nature. But I also told you he also has a human nature. Now look at w- with me at verse 14. And the word became flesh. Now stop right there. We need to do some work here. Now take everything that we've said so far about the word being divine and add to that a human nature. The eternally existing word added uh, flesh. He took on flesh. The way John says it is like this. And the word became flesh. Now I need you to hang with me for a moment because we're going to talk about some words, okay? Some Greek words because words matter, okay? Now the word became that we see up here and the word became flesh does not mean changed into, okay? Greek has a word for that. It's metamorpho, and you don't need to remember that, but they have a word for it. If you are listening, that sounds like our word metamorphosis, okay? It's actually where we get our word metamorphosis. John uses a different word, agenita. Now, I'm not saying that to sound smart. I'm just telling you they're two different words, and words have meanings, and those meanings matter. So in this context, that word agenita, became, means to take on an additional form of existence, okay? Addition. Metamorphosis is when one thing changes, transforms into another. So it, it, it's no longer the thing that it was before. Think of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. It's no longer a caterpillar anymore. It doesn't live like a caterpillar. It doesn't look like a caterpillar. It doesn't exist like a caterpillar anymore. Why? Because it, became a, it was a caterpillar, it then became a, a chrysalis, and then it became a butterfly. It's changed from one form into another. It doesn't add a form. It it changes and transforms. When a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, it ceases to be a caterpillar. That's not what's going on when the word became flesh. It's not the same thing as when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. That's not what's going on here. When the word became flesh, he added to his existing divine nature a human nature. So think of it this way. Now, a lot of times analogies break down, but this might be a helpful way to gain some categories. When a woman becomes a mother or when a man becomes a father, right? Think about what's going on there. A woman adds motherhood to her existence while still remaining a woman. A man adds fatherhood to his existence while still remaining a man. It's addition. When the Son of God, the Logos, adds to himself a human nature He adds it to his already existing divine nature. He adds humanity while still remaining divine. This is permanent and irreversible. So now and forever, the word is, we call him the God-man, fully God and fully human. We confess that together in that Christological statement at the beginning. Murray Harris, a, a commentator, writes these words. The word became what he was not, human, without ceasing to be what he was, divine, right? The the word has not always been human. At a particular point in time, at the incarnation, the word added flesh. He added humanity to his nature. The word took on flesh so that now the word is one person with two natures. So here's what that means. The word did not give up his divine nature. He isn't losing anything. He didn't surrender his divinity. He's adding something. He's gaining something, a human nature. He's not a divine nature kind of encased in flesh. He's not like putting on a superhero outfit. He actually takes on 
human nature. Human nature is more than just skin wrapped around something, right? He takes on the entire nature with all the human attributes that come with being a human. So here's what that means. Everything that is true about humanity is true about the word except for sin. Now, as we go throughout the rest of John's gospel, remember, this is just the prologue. The prologue is that part of the book that says, here's some themes and information you're going to want to think about as you read throughout the rest of this book. I know a lot of people just skip right over the prologue. Don't do that. Important information. This is like a public service announcement for the readers in the room. Don't skip the prologue. The author put it there for a reason. You can skip the foreword. Don't skip the prologue. The foreword's written by someone else. Prologue's written by the author. Valuable information in there. John is saying, don't skip this part. I'm going to lay out themes that you should be thinking about and considering as you go throughout the rest of my book. Everything that is true about humanity is true about the word except for sin. So we're going to go through John's gospel. We're going to see that this word gets hungry. He gets tired. He has to learn things. He's tempted like you and I, except without sin. He experiences a human life just like you and me. The word went through the birth canal. Just like think about that for a minute. It's incredible. He had to be taught things. He had to learn how to walk. He had to, be, he had to obey his parents. Right? He had to follow the laws of his day. He grieved when things were sad. Like Pastor Kevin was telling the kids when his friend Lazarus died, he wept. Even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead, it didn't, uh, over, uh, it didn't mean that he, that he wasn't in that moment sad that his friend was experiencing the worst plague. He experienced a human life just like you and me. And at the same time, the word is fully God with all of the attributes that come along with being divine. So the word is eternal. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Omnibenevolent and perfectly holy. The divine nature and the human nature are not fused together to become an alloy, right? Like one new thing, it's, that's not what's going on. They're not blended together or emulsified like a smoothie. That's not what's going on. They're two distinct natures in one person. And if you're going, like metaphysically, how does that work? The Bible doesn't answer that question. So many times we ask questions of the Bible, the Bible's not interested in giving us the answers to. He doesn't tell us how that works out. He just tells us that's what is. And we accept that by faith. At this point in his gospel, John isn't uh, concerned with unpacking how does a man live like that? How does a person live with a divine nature and a human nature? He doesn't unpack that reality any further. At this point, we still don't even know who the word is yet. He's saving that for the end, and so am I. But for now, we're given enough to know that the word has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, so that we can say the word is fully God and fully man. Now let's keep going in verse 14 to see the nearness of the word. Now the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. When the word became flesh, not only did he enter into humanity, but he entered into our time and space to dwell among us. 
Now, one thing you're going to notice as we go throughout John's gospel is that his writing is saturated and filled with Old Testament longings and showing how Jesus fulfills those things. So uh, your reading of the New Testament will always be heightened and made alive by your understanding of the Old Testament. And Kevin and I will do a good job of making sure you understand all of that Old Testament background. What is anticipated and promised in the Old Testament is realized and fulfilled in the New Testament. That's why the church doesn't get rid of the Old Testament. We're not going, look, the New Testament, we've got Jesus, we're all good. No, no, no. The Old Testament tells us what to expect and to understand and to know about Jesus. Now, here's one of those passages where, um, where there's this Old Testament background story to what John just said. Now, that word that we translate as dwelt, we have seen Uh, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word in the Greek is the verbal form of the word tabernacle. Here's what that means. In other words, you could literally translate this verse to say, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, because we don't talk about tabernacles and we don't know what that is, uh, uh, a lot of translators just use the word dwelt because it means that he came to live among us. I like how Eugene Peterson says it in the message translation. He says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. He, He came to live among us. Now that word tabernacle was the mobile temple that moved with Israel from the time they left Exodus until uh, they settled in the promised land and eventually built the more permanent temple. Now, both the tabernacle and the temple was where the visible glory and the presence of God resided. Now, we we hear that and and, and that kind of seems foreign to us, but you see, God has always desired to dwell with his people. If you go all the way back to the garden in Genesis chapter 1, before the fall of humanity, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they experienced a communion and fellowship with God where they ate with him, they had meals with him, they interacted with him. The Bible says that that in the evening, God would kind of walk and they'd have these like walks in the cool of the day with God. He wanted to dwell among his creation. You could think of the Garden of Eden as this first temple where Adam and Eve called home and where God dwelled with them and they were able to freely worship without sin and hesitation. But when our first parents took a bite of the forbidden fruit, they traded intimacy and communion with God for tyranny and autonomy. And when that happened, their experience of God's presence changed from delight to fear. What used to be a delight, hey, God is coming. We're going to get to walk with him. We get to share a meal with him. It became something they dreaded and feared. Look with me at Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You hear that? They sinned. And when God shows up, when his presence is there, they run and hide. Their guilt Fear and shame drove them to hide from God. Now, when you go throughout the rest of Genesis 3, you see kind of the judgment and the curses that come. But when the dust has settled from the reckoning, what happens? They're exiled from the garden. And with that um, uh, exile, they're exiled out of God's presence. And as the rest of the Old Testament progresses, God's plan to dwell once again with his people begins to unfold. So you see, as they are they're delivered out of um, slavery and bondage in Exodus for the purposes of worshiping with him, right? It's not just let my people go. It's let my people go that they may worship with me. He, after, after all of that happens and they're delivered out of that, he gives them the law, 
which is God's grace to teach an unholy people how to live with a holy God. He gives them the sacrificial system because he knows you're not going to measure up. You're going to fail. You need grace. You need something to atone for sin so that when you fail, you can still maintain this relationship. And then he provides the tabernacle and later the temple so that the presence of God can once again dwell among the people of God. Exodus 25, 8. This is the purpose statement for the sanctuary or the temple. He said, let them make me a sanctuary, a tabernacle that I may dwell in their midst. The whole purpose of the tabernacle is so that God can dwell among his people. And what's more, if you read through the nitty gritty plans and designs of the tabernacle and later the temple, you'll see that it's meant to resemble the Garden of Eden. So if you were able to walk through the temple, you would see carved images of pomegranates, open flowers blooming, palm trees, lilies, cedars, olive wood. In fact, when you were coming up to the entrance of the Holy of Holies, the very place where God's presence dwelt, there would be two cherubim engraved on the pillar, standing guard. It echoes the cherubim that are set as sentries with flaming swords to guard the entrance back into the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were exiled, the Bible says that God placed two cherubim with flaming swords so that no one can just uh, wiggle their way back into the garden. And in the Holy of Holies, God puts those cherubim back to remind them of what they they left when they left the garden and that um, coming through here is where the presence of God is. All throughout the tabernacle and the temple were placed these reminders of Eden. It was like God saying, there's coming a day when I will dwell once again with my people. Now, the tabernacle and the temple were, uh, uh, were, were great improvements. But we also see that it's not complete because the presence of God isn't experienced by everybody. See, not just anybody can walk into the Holy of Holies and hang out with God. Not anybody can do that. In fact, only the priest can do it after lots of ritualistic um, cleansing and only one time a year. It's limited. His presence has drawn near. But friends, listen, it hasn't drawn near enough. People are still without the presence of God. Now, what's my point in going through all of that Old Testament background? After the garden, when humanity lost the presence of God, you start to see God work and you start to see him draw ever so near. But there's always this distance. There's always this separation, this reminder that the work of reconciliation still has a long way to go. Now, put yourself in uh, the position of John's first readers who would have known all of that background. And then they hear these glorious words. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It's like a song that's been building and building and building, leading to this crescendo moment. And the incarnation is that crescendo of the glory of God. It represents a major milestone moment in the work of God's redemption and reconciliation. 
Now remember, this is still just the prologue. It's laying out all these themes and things not to miss as we read the rest of the book. And over the next 20 chapters, John is going to unpack all that they saw so that we too can see the glory of the only Son from the Father. But for right now, he wants us to know this glorious truth. God drew near to us. We can never draw near to him. It required God drawing near to us. The Son of God took on flesh, and John says we saw him, we interacted with him, we lived with him, we ministered with him. And at the end of the day, John says the best word I can use to describe all that we saw and all that we experienced is glory. Now that's one of those words that's really hard to define, but let me give you a definition to work with. We'll have it on the screen. God's glory is the public display of who God is, his worth his value, his perfections, his beauty, his goodness, his truth, all of it for us to worship and enjoy. It's like God says, I'm gonna take all of who I am and put it on display so that you can see it and worship me and enjoy me. What, God is, what John is saying is that when he and the other apostles saw the Son of God in flesh, they saw the glory of God on full display and it was full of grace and truth. Now, there's another Old Testament background story that provides some uh, helpful ways to think about this glory. If you remember Moses, he's, uh, there was a time in his life, in his ministry, when he asked God, he said, God, could I see your glory? Can I see your glory? You can read about this in Exodus 33 through 34. Let me give you the long story short. At this point in Moses' ministry, he has been through a lot. He's just led the people out of Egypt. He went toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. He went up on the mountain and got the Ten Commandments. He came down off that mountain only to find the people that he had just led out of slavery worshiping a golden calf, which was one of the gods of Egypt. It's like he's going, seriously, I leave you guys for 10 minutes? You guys are already worshiping false gods? And he knows that the road ahead is going to be hard. He's experienced the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows that come with leading God's people. And he's at this pivotal point in his ministry. And he says, God, I need to see your glory. I need to be reminded once again of what all this is for. And if I could just get a glimpse, if I could just get a taste, it would be enough so I could endure, so I could have the strength and the the courage to go on. And God in his grace says, yes, you can see my glory. Look what he says. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So Moses Uh, hides in this cleft that's kind of cut out of the side of the mountain and the Lord manifests his glory and uh, it says his glory passes by him, near to him and as he does, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed these words, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, here's what happens. 
Moses came back down from this mountaintop experience with God, having seen and experienced a taste of the glory of God. And the Bible says that when he came down and the people saw him, his face was shining. It was glowing because he had seen the glory of God. What John is saying, when we saw, uh, when we saw the word, when we drew near to God, when the son drew near to us, we saw the glory of God. The glory of the Son is the same as the glory of God, and it is full of grace and truth. If you were to take those two words, grace and truth, they'd be good summary statements of what the Lord said to Moses as he passed by. It's grace because God says, I'm a God of merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and I will even forgive your iniquity even when you don't deserve it. Your transgressions, your sins can be forgiven, and that's my grace. At the same time, his glory is true because he doesn't just sweep our sin under the rug or clear the guilty as if nothing has happened. If you had been sinned against, if you have this grave injustice and you go before a court system and they say, hey, it was no big deal. Let's just sweep that under the rug. Can we just pretend like nothing happened? You would outcry, right? You'd say, no, 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 that's not justice. You can't just pretend like it didn't happen. And God is no less a judge, a just judge who says, I cannot just um, wipe it away as if nothing has happened. That's exactly why the son has come. He has come to deal with our sin and to deal with it once and for all so that um, all who believe in him can have abundant life. What John is saying is if you want to know the grace and truth of God, get to know the son of God. He's like, it's like he's saying, remember that time when Moses saw the glory of God and God said, I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And at the same time, not only I, I will forgive your sin, but, I'm, but I can't just sweep it under the rug. There's like this missing piece in that statement, right? You're like, but how? How will you forgive? How will you not just sweep it under the rug? How will you deal with our sin so that we can be forgiven, so that we can experience your merciful love, so that we can experience your forgiveness? He says, look to the Son of God. That's why he came. And when he came and dealt with sin, it was on glorious display. He came to deal with our sin once and for all. The Son is fully God and fully man. He drew near to us so that we could draw near to him. And again, John hasn't fully unpacked all of the implications of that, told us how it's going to be. There's still a mystery there. That's why we gotta work our way through John's gospel. But for right now, we know the word drew near to us. And now in verse 16 and 17 and 18, we're ready for John to reveal to us the name of that word who became flesh. Look at me at verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. Now, you might have guessed it, you might have assumed it, but John doesn't want there to be any guessing or assumptions. In verse 17, John reveals who the word is. The word who was with God in the beginning, the word who is God, the word who became flesh and dwelled among us is none other than Jesus Christ. That's who this word is. If you remember from last week, we looked at John 1, 12 through 13. John said these words, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God 
who were born not uh, who were born not of blood or nor of the will of flesh nor of the will of man but at God but, uh, but of God. See at that point John hadn't revealed his name yet. Right? He said you need to believe in his name to receive him to become children of God. And now in verse 17 we see his name is Jesus Christ. At that point John hadn't revealed his name but now we know the name that should become the object of our greatest affection and our greatest attention and our highest allegiance, and that name is Jesus Christ. Now, it's at this point in John's gospel, you think about all the times he's mentioned the word. At this point in John's gospel, he does not any longer refer to Jesus as the word. From here until the end, the Son of God is identified as Jesus Christ. Everyone who receives Jesus and who believes in that wonderful name they will receive grace upon grace, and they receive the right to become children of God. Now, what does John mean by grace upon grace? Well, our first word is looking at the word that's translated as upon. In Greek, it's the word that means um, instead of, or one thing that replaces another. So it's like saying grace that replaces grace. And he goes on in verse 17 to talk about the first grace that's been replaced by a second grace. He says, we received the gift and grace of the law of Moses. Now, we often don't think about God's law as a, as a gift of grace. But friends, God's law is not a burden. It's a gift. It becomes a burden because of sin and because, frankly, we just don't like being told what to do. But that's not God's problem. That's our problem, right? We're the ones that take the law and make it a burden. But he gave us the law so that we would know how to live a life that pleases God, to know his expectations, to know the difference between right and wrong, to know how to thrive and flourish. But because of sin, we've taken the goodness and grace of God's law and made it a burden. And then John says, the grace of that law was then replaced by the even greater grace and truth of Jesus Christ. As John will show throughout his gospel, Jesus perfectly kept God's law with every thought, with every motive, and with his every deed so that eventually he could give us the gift of that perfect record of righteousness. So when Jesus goes to the cross, he takes on our every imperfection and sin. And in this great exchange, he takes our unrighteousness and he gives us his righteousness. As it's often said around here, Jesus lived the life we failed to live. He died the death we deserved to die so that we might be reconciled to God. So when the fullness of time had come, when God said, it's time for me to fully accomplish redemption, God the Father didn't send a message. He didn't send another messenger. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is God's final word. He is the message to be received. See, Jesus didn't point to a way. He said that he is the way. And that's why the word became flesh. That's why the word drew near, so that you and I could receive the fullness of grace upon grace that comes from believing in the name of Jesus Christ. Look with me at Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. You hear those echoes of John 1 in there? 
He is the radiance of the glory of God. He has the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is exactly what John told us, right? That he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The writer of Hebrews is saying the exact same thing as John as he closes his prologue. What he's saying is no one has ever seen God the Father as he is in himself. It's like what God told Moses. You can't, no one can see me and live. But God chose to reveal himself through Jesus. He said, you can't see me as I am in myself, but I can bring Jesus near to you. And you can see him. And when you see him, you've seen me. Listen, you cannot know God without knowing Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people who want to know God kind of ambiguously, but listen, you cannot know God without knowing Jesus Christ because Jesus is the Father's self-disclosure. See, God chooses how to reveal himself to us, and he did that in the person and work of Jesus. John is saying Jesus reveals and explains God. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. If you want to understand God, look at Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is right now at the Father's side, he is the only one who made God known. Jesus made visible what was previously invisible. Seven Mile Road, do you want to know God? If you do, if you'd say, I want to know God, John is saying, look to Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is true God of true God. He has the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And to prove that he is worth knowing, he died for you and me, that we might delight in his grace. Now, before we walk out of here today, how do we apply a text like this to our lives? Two applications. The first one is this. Receive and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. The grace upon grace of being an adopted son or daughter of God are only given to those who receive and believe in the name of Jesus. To receive Jesus is to receive him as he is revealed to us, not some edited version that suits your tastes and preferences. See, that's what our current culture teaches us to do. It says if you don't like something, if you don't like the way it looks, just Photoshop it. You can make it look like whatever you want to. Just take out the things that you don't like. But Jesus will not be photoshopped or edited. See, Jesus is Lord whether we like it or not. And we are called to receive him as he is. He is either the Lord of all of your life or he he is the Lord of none of your life. We don't get to edit and pick and choose what we want. And here's what that means. To receive Jesus means he has your highest attention, your deepest affection, and your greatest allegiance. It is to say with your mouth and your heart and your very life, Jesus Christ is my Lord. If you haven't received and believed in Christ today, before you leave here today, you need to answer this question. What is keeping you from acknowledging him for who he is as Jesus Christ the Lord? What keeps you from making that declaration with your very life? Second application, give the gift of your presence and nearness to others. With a text like this, with the main application is really to receive and believe in Jesus, I also wanted us to think about the implications of the incarnation of Christ on our everyday life. As I read this text and asked, Spirit, what should I change? What do I need to do differently in my life? I've, I've received and believed in the name of Jesus. He is the Lord of my life. How, how would I take the, the, the fact of him drawing near and let it change and shape my everyday life? And when I thought about it like that, I was convicted 
about how I have a tendency to be physically present, but withhold my presence from my family, friends, and neighbors. See, just like God gives us the gift of his presence, what would it look like if we gave those around us the gift of our presence? Like, When is the last time you gave your friend, your child, your spouse, your neighbor, your undivided attention? Like no phones, no email, no social media, no scrolling through videos, no being there but actually thinking about all the other circumstances, the things going on in your life. Just your full and focused attention where you really listened and engaged. Friends, technology can wait. The situation from work, look at me, it can wait till tomorrow. It doesn't matter if what they're saying you've heard before. The notifications on our devices are like little tiny lies telling us that the thing right in front of us, the human being right there in front of us, is less important. And they're lies. Don't believe them. Cut the background noise. Just being in the same room isn't the same thing as being present. You can physically be in the room and not give your presence. And this is especially difficult, especially if it's people we see and interact with all the time because we can take our interactions with them for granted. Listen to me. You cannot rely on past presence. It's not how it works. People need your current presence, not simply memories of your previous presence. Now listen, I am saying this out loud with my wife like standing right in the back looking directly at me, which means I'm going to be held accountable this week. But that's good because friends, we'll never get today back. When it's over, it's gone. The time we have with our loved ones, it's gone. Now we get to try again tomorrow, but those days are gone. So Seven Mile, how would your relationships change this week if we were fully present? Like God was fully present. He left behind all kinds of glory to come be with us. What would it look like if you were fully present with your friends and family and neighbors? Being fully present right where God has placed us and giving others the precious an irreplaceable gift of our presence, just like the word Jesus Christ became flesh to dwell among us. Let's pray.